Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... John Corey Jotnockreiner. I figure I need an acronym that does not stand for my name at all. Just like uh, JWT tokens. Is that As redundant, JWT tokens? That's totally uh, yes, redundant. I don't know. Let me go ask J- my ATM machine. <laughs> JSON, oh yeah, ATM machine is also very redundant. Yeah. As Corey is hinting at, today we'll be chatting about JOTs. And if you don't know what a JOT is, uh, find believe it or not, there is no O in the acronym that it comes from. Uh, we'll be discussing a vulnerability slash maybe not vulnerability involving them. Uh, we'll go over the latest updates from our good friend ChatGPT that's slowly taking over everyone's jobs. Uh, and then we will end with the death, the final death, buried in the ground of another Windows operating system. Uh, with that, Let's go ahead and chat our way in. So let's start out this week with a news story about a vulnerability that just, uh, I guess, was resolved at the end of December, but the uh, disclosure for it came out courtesy of Palo Alto just today as we're recording this. Um, So by the time you're listening to this episode, it would have been last week where researchers at Palo Alto published their detailed analysis of CVE 2022-23529, which I'm sure everyone will have memorized by the end of this episode, uh, which they described as a remote code execution vulnerability in the popular JSON web token JavaScript library uh, that, again, this was all patched back in December. So I guess real, real quick pause, but yeah. weird, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with the vulnerability, but I always call these JWT tokens, as you say, JSON web tokens, but the advisory says it, JWT is pronounced as JOT. I'd never heard anyone call these JOT tokens. That yeah. total aside, but it was it's in their advisory and it was a surprise to me, even though JWT, I mean, anyone in security and people like us that have web application products, it's a very commonly used, I mean, everyone knows what JWT tokens are. A surprise yeah, that people call it JOT. Trying to think, I don't think I've ever talked to any of our developers about JSON web tokens in person in a way where they would call them JOT. But uh, yeah, that was actually have, a little bit of a surprise to me too. I have actually. And uh, some of the stuff we look at as a company involves JWT tokens and, and some of the issues we found with the product involved them. So anyways, just random surprise, the things you learn. Of course, I still yeah. kill, call GIFs GIFs and not Jiffy peanut butter or GIFs, I should say. Because a GIF is a GIF regardless <laughs> of what the founder wants it to be called, just like a RAR archive it's is rare. a rare archive. Yep. Dang it. <laughs> anyway, sorry for the aside. Keep going. What's this vulnerability all about, Mark? Or what are So I guess JSON like high level first off, JSON web tokens, really popular tool used in authentication for most web apps these days. It's effectively cryptographically signed JSON formatted data. So JSON formatted data, think like key value pairs, like username, Emla Liberty, account type, administrator, that sort of thing that then the application signs using a public and private key pair so that a web server or a web app can provide this data down to a client that is authenticated. And that client then, as they are interacting through the application, can provide that back to the server. The server then gets to know from the client, you know, what's their username, what's their account type, what's all that, in a way where the user, if they were malicious, can't modify it uh, without breaking that cryptographic signature. 
It's basically a way for a client and a server to maintain some sort of like state or information while interacting with it in a way that is cryptographically secure. Now, JSON web tokens are also a really popular target for vulnerability analysis. Like the disclosure that we're going through pointed out as well that typically you see it in some uh, vulnerabilities and like how it's implemented in a way that's insecure. Uh, speaking from experience, our uh, latest update to the Capture the Flag platform that we uh, set up for the last CTF actually has a JSON web token implementation error that could allow someone to uh, take over or mimic someone else's account. Uh, we are in the process of updating that. If you want to have some fun before we do, though, please go ahead and hammer away. I don't care about that site anymore. But anyways, this vulnerability isn't in the implementation of JSON web tokens, but it's in a very popular library that many JavaScript, I actually go so far as to say most JavaScript applications that use JWTs probably use. Uh, so the JSON web token library is maintained by Auth0, a popular identity uh, provider on the internet. I think they're part of like Okta now, if I remember right. Um, and it's, again, widely used by most JavaScript applications that need JSON web tokens these days. Inside that library, there is a function called verify, which, as you might guess, is designed to verify the contents of a token. Make sure that the contents are valid using the token's cryptographic signature. Um, so a web app might use this to just confirm a user supplied token is legitimate, that they haven't tried to tamper with it before taking the information out of it and using it within the application. Now, so the function accepts three different parameters. So the token itself that it wants to verify, the JSON web token or JOT, as we have discovered it is now pronounced, uh, a secret or public key. So the actual cryptographic key opposite of what was used to sign it. If for some reason you sign a JSON web token using the public key for your key pair, you would verify it with the private key. More often than not, you sign it with the private key and verify it with the public key, though. And the third parameter is just a set of options. So telling the, the verify function any configuration elements that it might need in order to successfully verify the token. So JSON web tokens, or JOTs, which I'm never going to get used to calling them, uh, they support a bunch of different algorithms that you can use to verify signatures, different HMAC algorithms, different hashing algorithms, different cryptographic algorithms. So one of the options you can provide to this function is a list of allowed algorithms uh, to use for verification. That list is optional. If you leave it empty when you're using the function, it will instead try and figure out what list of allowed algorithms it should use based off of that secret or public key parameter that you pass in. So I guess quick pause here, that secret or public key, think of it like a certificate for a website. In fact, it's typically a PEM encoded file. So PEM being a really popular format for passing certificate information in human readable text. If you open up a file and it says like begin certificate at the top and end certificate at the bottom and a whole bunch of base 64 encoded data in the middle, that's a PEM encoded file. That includes like the, the public key or potentially private key of the certificate, uh, issue, uh, information about the subject of the certificate, uh, the algorithms that it can be used with. And so by default with the verify function in the JSON web token library, if you don't specify the list of algorithms you can use, it will attempt to decode that secret you provide it 
and pull out the acceptable list of algorithms from there. Um, so that secret or public key parameter, as it's called, accepts either a string or what's supposed to be a specific object called a key object. Um, so I guess real quick tangent on objects in JavaScript and programming. Um, think of, so we've talked about buffers a lot. You often hear it in the context of like buffer overflows. Consider a buffer is just a blob of data. So in JavaScript, it's a object. And that object is just a collection of like data. So variables, strings that could be in it, numbers that could be in it, and functions to act on that data. And I've actually think I got a good analogy for this well, one. It's technically like a reserved bit of memory to hold data, right? Yeah, exactly. So think of it like an object is a microwave. So your microwave has a button for opening the door to let you put your food inside of it. Your food in this case is the data that you're going to temporarily store in the microwave and then use other buttons to interact with. You have a button to add 30 seconds to the microwave. You've got a, a popcorn button that'll just burn everything to a crisp if you use it, or really no one knows what that button does. Or leave sure lots of seeds, popcorn. one or the other. Yeah, exactly. Kernels, whatever <laughs> so you So either way, your, your food you put into the, the, uh, the microwave is your data. You've got buttons on the interface to interact with it. Those are your functions that are tied to an object. So the key object in this library should contain a key. So the public or private key, as well as some additional data, like the algorithms that you can use to sign with that key. Uh, this object has a function built into it, a button on it called toString. And that toString function just takes the contents of the key and outputs it as a PEM formatted string. That whole begin certificate, base64 data, end certificate. Uh, in JavaScript, a string is another type of object as well too, technically. And that object has its own toString function also. So you can create a string variable and then on that variable call the toString function. And it basically just outputs the contents of that variable again for you. Um, so the issue with this verify function is that it doesn't actually confirm that the user supplied input is a string or that specific key object before it calls the toString function. Uh, so it assumes that it's either a string or the key object and that calling that function will output a PEM encoded file that it can then parse and interact with. Um, so in Palo Alto's advisory, uh, they proved that you could create a new just arbitrary buffer, so an arbitrary object that you want, and override the toString function in there to do whatever you want with it. Uh, think of, so overriding is basically just assigning new behavior to an existing function in an object. It's like if I took the add 30 seconds button on the microwave and made it behind the scenes instead add 30 minutes. So the button says 30 seconds, hit it, but in reality it's adding 30 minutes. That would be a override of that function acting on the data inside that microwave. So as their proof of concept, they created a malicious buffer with a two string function that wrote out text file into the file system that just said pwned. Uh, they showed another example uh, where they used that function, loaded up JavaScript's child process module, which then let them execute arbitrary code on the system. Um, so the fix that, fix, I'm putting in quotation marks because we're going to get into something in a little bit here, but the resolution for this vulnerability was to basically rewrite this portion of the code and the verify function 
to check that the provided parameter was either a string or the expected key object buffer, and then force it into a key object buffer again uh, before calling the, the toString function. So ultimately, by the time it goes to call this function, it should have either errored out because the user supplied data wasn't compatible, wasn't expected, or it's either a string or a key object, and that toString function will return the actual string. So this was a part of the 9.0.0 patch that came out December 21st, I think. Um, and now we see the disclosure coming out just this week. Um, so there's a few mitigating uh, scenarios for this vulnerability, though. So the first is um, it's extremely rare for a JSON Web Token implementation to accept a user-supplied secret or public key value, that second parameter for this function. So typically, when you make an application using JOTS, I, that still sounds weird. By the way, I, I, I always pointed it out just because <laughs> I've never heard it said that way. We don't have to start. Actually, I, I was asking this much to know if I always say JWT. I'm, I am actually questioning Palo Alto's, is this really an industry pronunciation? <laughs> but anyways, feel free to use whatever anyways. you prefer. Uh, so either way. Uh, normally, you would accept like the token from the user and attempt to verify that. There are extremely few like realistic scenarios out there where you would accept the token and also the key used to verify that token from an untrusted user. Like I'm sure someone wrote some like whatever here. Let's test and show what this function can do type of application. But in like in practical terms, you're not gonna go to Amazon.com and give them your JSON web token as well as a key to go verify it. Like that's, that's just not going to be practical. So that's one mitigating factor that even Palo Alto um, released in the disclosure. And one of the reasons why, so NIST actually rated this as a 9.8 severity vulnerability. And Palo Alto gave it a 7.6 too, which is yeah. still high, but I think we're going to get to, it may not even feel that high. Yeah. You know? So that's uh, at least where it's at with the disclosure. Now, I have my own hot take on this and that this vulnerability is a complete nothing burger and isn't actually an issue at all. Um, so I'm going to try not to get too in the weeds here. Uh, but the proof of concept they provided shows the attacker has full control of the JavaScript source code's contents, meaning the proof of concept is they create their own buffer within the JavaScript file. They define a new variable in the file of a buffer uh, they create a override for the toString function to have that malicious data, and then they pass that into the verify function. Uh, realistically, in the real world, the attacker is not going to have control over your JavaScript source code file itself. They're going to be uh, interacting with the application that it's running with, basically. So in the real world, they're not going to be able to rewrite your source code and insert their malicious JavaScript object in there and then have it called with the verify function, they would need to find a way to have your web app deserialize the data they provide and then run it through this function. And it's not even just deserializing it. So I guess pausing there, serialization, deserialization, it's basically taking data structured in some format and using it to rebuild an object. Uh, JSON is technically serialized data. It's a string of key value pairs that you can parse and turn into a object where you can access those keys and retrieve their values. Um, but the reality is like 
99.9999% of web applications out there will accept user input as like strings or like a file or something like that. And it would be extremely rare, even to the point of like, I, I have to feel like there's no applications out there at all that would take user input and then deserialize it into a raw buffer in a way that it could actually overwrite the two string function. Like it's not enough to parse the JSON and have like a key in there that says two string parentheses parentheses and then oh look I can overwrite the function when it parses that just by calling that it's it's what I'm getting at is it's near impossible I'd say I in fact I'm going to go so far to say is there are no applications out there in the world that take a user supplied input deserialize it into a raw object in a way that can overwrite the two string function like if this is a vulnerability then every single JavaScript library out there is vulnerable. Anything that would potentially call the toString function on an object is vulnerable because you could just go in there and rewrite the source code and create your own object that has a malicious toString function. And, oh, look, it's vulnerable. So this, it really feels like a complete nothing burger, like no real practical impact. And in my opinion, with my very limited homegrown developer knowledge and not anything college educated it's not possible to actually exploit this in the real world not even that you know they don't accept that input for uh, that particular parameter but even if you find a web application that lets you pass in your own secret or public key it's not going to accept it in a way that this could trigger the vulnerability so anyways off my soapbox <laughs> that said though like this style of vulnerability is still like real. Like accepting user supplied input without validating it does tend to rely on issues within applications. Uh, we see this often with, you know, buffer overflows and other types of memory corruption issues, um, type confusion where it accepts it as one type of data and then acts on another type. Deserialization vulnerabilities are massive and some uh, libraries or languages like PHP and Java have really big issues with unsafe deserialization problems. And so just because this isn't really a real vulnerability, for lack of a better word, doesn't mean that you know deserialization and untrusted user input aren't real issues that we have to watch out for as developers out there. For sure. And I think simple practical advice is if you're, you have web applications that are using, you know, this particular auth zero, you know, JSON web token JavaScript, you should still get 9.0.0 anyways. You know, whether this is a severity 7.6 or a two, <laughs> uh, they fix something to just uh, make your life easy and not have to worry about it all. Doesn't hurt to go get the update. Yep, and at a minimum, 9.0.0 has a lot of really cool new functionality too. Absolutely. So definitely upgrade for that at a minimum. But this particular CVE, like, I don't understand how it got past verification. It'd be uh, interesting to see if the, the industry reacts in any way to this. That'd be kind of interesting. Like, honestly, if this is a vulnerability, then I'm about to go make like hundreds of thousands of dollars on HackerOne <laughs> pointing this out on every single JavaScript library out there. So uh, we'll see. Maybe I can go line my pockets with other similar issues. But okay, done with ranch. Moving on. Uh, so if you've not been living under a rock, for the last couple of months, 
uh, you've probably noticed something created by this chat GPT program uh, that came out late November. Um, so I think we already chatted about chat GPT in other Many contexts. Times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but quick refresh, uh, it's created by an organization called OpenAI, where last November they released this, what they're calling chat GPT as a new interface for their large language model or LLM. Uh, LLMs are a specific type of machine learning or AI model that's designed specifically to understand human communications. So in the world of AI and machine learning, there's models for different use cases. Like you wouldn't use a LLM to try and figure out if a file on your computer is malware or not. You would use probably a different model in order to like K nearest neighbors or something to identify whether that might be malicious or not based off of certain features in it. LLMs, though, are specifically designed to let us interact with them and them interact with us in a way that's natural to our own languages. Uh, you've probably seen posts all over social media of it writing short stories. I think at least one university so far has said that they're straight up banning access to the website because students have been using it to right. write Papers. essays. It can code. Yeah. <laughs> and we've seen it used to write code. Uh, we talked Last time we talked about this, I pointed out a um, capture the flag contest challenge that it both created and then in a separate session was able to solve uh, for a, I think it was cross-site scripting in a web application. So, um, and I think I don't know if you mentioned, but Microsoft's already invested one billion into the company OpenAI that's behind it, and apparently plans to invest ten billion more. And uh, I think the the general public valuation of OpenAI right now is around twenty nine billion. <laughs> yeah, they invested a billion back in twenty nineteen, and part of that is letting them use ChatGPT within the Bing search engine, yep. which might be the single only thing that gets me to ever use Bing over Google. <laughs> uh, because you can think of the practical uses in there, like not even just like auto-completing the sentence that you're trying to write for your question, but instead of just trolling through a database that was filled by an algorithm of based off of your search, here's websites, like being able to even answer certain questions or point you towards a more usable yeah. uh, site or response. My, my understanding is they plan on using it not just for search engines like Bing, but for like their OS search. So uh, say your mom keeps on asking you how to go into, you know, configuration and change her screensaver or something, rather than having to troubleshoot that with your mom, your mom can just ask uh, Cortana or whatever on Windows 11, hey, how do I do this? And because of its human language understanding, it will be better at being able to guide people. So it yeah. is it's going to have tons of uses. It is and like, it's extremely powerful. Yeah. It's pretty nuts seeing just in the last couple of months, like some of the things that folks have been able to get it to do. It's exciting too, by the way. It's very cool. But the, the problem is. is the more powerful and cool something gets, it can go two ways. I think it was like... Three, it was probably at least two or three years ago, we talked about, I, I think it might even have been OpenAI's last round of their LLM, yeah. uh, where you could feed it. Uh, it was someone trying to write like a movie script or something. And it just comes out as pure gibberish back then, where we talked about it because we it was joked funny about it. Because yeah. It was so poorly like put together and written. But now, like, it straight up passes as a human being in the responses. I, I'm starting to worry for authors having a job. It's, I mean, it's not perfect yet, but wow, Correct. for how much it's evolved in three years. And unfortunately, as with all good things, uh, 
bad guys tend to take it and break it. And so we started seeing, uh, it was back in December, uh, there was one individual on a popular underground hacking forum that posted a malware sample that was created entirely by ChatGPT. Uh, so it was a pretty basic, like Python-based information stealer. It would go retrieve, look for certain file types like .docx, .pdf, that sort of stuff. Zip them up and upload them to a FTP server. Uh, then they showed a Java program that set up a backdoor using PuTTY. Then we saw another user posted ransomware uh, that they originally claimed they wrote themselves. And then other users pointed out that it looked very similar to some other AI-generated code patterns. And they confessed that uh, ChatGPT gave them, quote, a nice hand to finish the script. Uh, this one was thankfully extremely basic. So it used a hard-coded password to encrypt files using the Twofish and Blowfish algorithms. Um, but this particular user, they were actually, they've been pretty active on the this unnamed underground forum. In fact, they were the one that leaked the old InfraGuard database back in December too. Um, we've seen there were examples from ChatGPT being used to create a full-on dark web marketplace in PHP. So make a website, give me all the PHP files I need to create a dark web marketplace. And then lately there's been a lot of uh, discussion on using ChatGPT and actual scams against other people how to make $500 by using ChatGPT to scam people. The point of this though is, you know, the ne'er-do-gooders, the, the bad guys out there, bad folks out there, are starting to use OpenAI ChatGPT to create malicious malware content, scams, all sorts of stuff. Right now it's pretty basic, but I mean, it used to be the output of it was pretty basic. And we saw how that evolved in just the last couple of years. Like, is this a real risk now of AI generated malware stealing all of our jobs? Like, is this really a surprise to you, Mark? We made predictions about AI being used to automate phishing and everything. And at the time they were just based on research thoughts. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it was all hypothetical. This this report that you know we saw from one of the folks out there, where they're actually pointing out underground discussions and tests, just shows that they really are starting to realize this in reality. It's no longer just researchers saying, "Hey, bad guys are probably going to use this to to make things worse and to automate their attacks," uh, but now we're seeing it happen. I think we already know because of the underground marketplace that. Uh, and anyone can go and do ransomware as a service. It doesn't take much skills, but I, I would say a lot of the threat actors out there successful that aren't necessarily the smart technical ones that figure out how to make the malware. And that's why there is a, such a big appetite for this underground marketplace. But now those unsuccessful people or non-technical people can just get an AI to start doing the work for them and they can take out the middleman and and save themselves some money too. So I, I think it's inevitable. It's going to be used more and more. And it used to be that like using ransomware as a service or malware as a service, like you as the purchaser in this situation, all you had to do is create the fish to get it delivered to an organization. Now you can use chat GPT to create, create the that fish, fish too. too. And it would be probably pretty dang believable as well. Like, And I, I think they're right now they're using off the shelf you know, think chat GPT, but they haven't started training it their own ways too. But 
you know, take the the idea that it can already AI can already write code from all the code examples out there. But what if you there's a plenty of leaked malware source code specifically? If someone gets a little smarter about data science and AI, they could start adjusting Chat GPT or or some other AI platform using previous malware as training data too. So they could this this is just using off the shelf tools not intended to help malware and and darknet underground folks but as they get more and more intimate and familiar with this tool with with AI in general through things like chat gpt they might start to even get AI that's better specifically at the malicious stuff and not just good at human language or whatnot or general code now what writing. about on the defensive side though like can we use these large language models to maybe catch Fishing. Oh, for sure, probably. It, it goes both ways. But as I'm sure you know, Mark, there's with machine, it's going to be machine versus machine one day. Whenever there's machine learning used for good, there's adversarial machine learning. So I, I think uh, someone could probably train and write a model to look for indicators that this email was written. We're already trying to figure out ways to see if this art was created by a machine versus a human. Uh, I think, you know, with deep fakes, as they get better and better and they're actually used in Hollywood, there's already an industry for ensuring that someone at least can tell that this isn't reality. This was made by a deep fake. So I think machine learning is going to be used to start to recognize machine learning created materials. But as that happens, the adversary can go back and train, you know, it, it's it's a new cat and mouse game, but it's going to be our AIs that are playing the game instead of the analy human analysts themselves. So there's going to be some future where like you and I, we're not going to be doing the grunt work. We're just going to be managing these giant server farms and making sure that stuff's running okay yeah. so they can just duke it out with each other. And having data scientists that help tune some of our things as the adversarial machine learning news learns something new to evade our machine learning, detecting an anom a slight little anomaly that makes it less human or something, we'll have to have our data scientists trying to find a new technique to detect that. So I, I think... Shoot, a lot of jobs might turn into data science. <laughs> I, you know, I used to, I still do joke about Skynet becoming real and, you know, the future we're going to be murdered by AI. But I, chat GPT has really made it look a little more realistic that we're getting ever closer to a potentially sentient or at least like close enough to might as well be sentient computer program. A robot get, that can seem human, even if it doesn't have its own necessarily motives yet. I, I could certainly see us getting to a point where we have a physical and or computer-based robot that seems very darn human. We're, we're, I, I, I don't think a, a chat AI has broken the Turing test yet, but we, we seem to be get, getting closer and closer to that event horizon. And for now, I guess, like the good news is the examples that have popped up of malware specifically created by ChatGPT have been extremely basic. But I think like you just said, this is just the start. And it'll be interesting to see when we revisit this topic in two years, how far it's been advanced in just that. And that's time. the scary thing, though, is I think it's exponential evolution, right? We used to joke at, at how bad it was. 
but it's just a data equation. The more and more data that you feed it, 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 it's exponentially gotten better in the short period of time. So I don't think it's that far away that it gets more and more, on one hand, potentially useful. Maybe we can solve some huge societal problems. Maybe uh, using AI to play with chemistry and biology will have our cure to cancer quicker too, but uh, <laughs> got to watch out for the potential negative usage of it as well the the AI models all nuking civilization because yeah. they've decided that human beings are irrelevant. Humans fit can fix cancer, but then the AI model adds a tiny little adjustment to some drug that slowly kills us over time that we can't connect. I don't know, but yeah. Or it fixes cancer by eliminating the host. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, moving on, our final topic of the day. Uh, it is finally... The end, the super ultra final end of Windows 7 support and Windows 8.1. By that, I assume Absolutely. you're talking about extended, They right? They yep. technically have went end of, of, of update for a while, but they have this extended service period or security period. So Windows 7 went end of support in January of 2020, but Microsoft has a program that they call their extended security update program. Basically, enterprise users can pay to continue getting updates typically in you know large environments where you can't just plan ahead and move to a different operating system well before it goes into support. Um, so that three-year period is now up as of January 10th of this year, and Windows 7 is officially not receiving any more updates. Uh, Windows 8.1 went end of support this year too, and they are not, as of right now, going to offer an extended security updates program. Largely because I think only five people in the world probably use Windows 8.1, and they're the ones that couldn't figure out how to upgrade their laptops to Windows 10. Uh, speaking of which, Microsoft recommends users updating to Windows 10. It's most likely that if your machine is running Windows 7, the hardware requirements aren't going to be there to get to Windows 11. You have to have a TPM and a few other processor requirements in order to run Windows 11. And they said, if you can't upgrade, time to get a new machine. Now, it's easy for us to say up here in our ivory towers, but the real reality out there is it takes people a while to get off of Windows versions. Uh, so there's a site called statscounter.com. Basically, it maps traffic to certain websites to see what br browsers and operating systems people are using. And they found that as of December of this last year, 11% uh, of global Windows OS desktops are using Windows 7 still. Now it's down from 13% the year prior, but that's still one in 10 machines using Windows 7. Now I'm not surprised. I, I think the consumer, even if security is the thing, a consumer that's paying for operating systems out of their pocket, you know, every, every, every time they build a computer, it's, it's like now that I'm adult, it really is. People should pay. It's the operating system's like the core thing, but it was always a pain in the ass to add that $100 to a computer build or whatever if you're just a small, you know, teenage consumer. Uh, so I, I, I feel like consumers probably drive, and Windows 7 happened to be a pretty good release in general. So... I can see consumer enterprises hopefully are updating more on that. I think the enterprises that don't, you mentioned, are like OT, you know, critical people that have older software issues that they have to deal with. But I have a feeling consumers are the ones that kind of hold on to operating systems for a long time. Even my dad, right? When you get used to Windows 7 and 
while it's not changed that much, Windows 10 is quite a different experience, and that just irritated that I, I want Windows to deal with what I know. Windows 11 is basically Mac OS now, too. Yeah, it's uh, so... Yeah, it's like you say, it does take a long time, I think, especially in consumers for them to move off operating systems. And in certain like. verticals, it's an even bigger issue. So in healthcare specifically. So there was a report just last year, I guess, tail end of 2021. There was a survey by HIMSS uh, Healthcare Cybersecurity where they found that one third of all health systems have devices running Windows 2008 or Windows 7. And in fact, one fifth are running Windows XP as well, too. That's pretty much par for the course. Like in some of the uh, the conferences I've gone to in the last year, like I've met with folks that work in the healthcare industry that were getting new equipment delivered in 2021 and 2022 that was coming brand new from the manufacturer running Windows 7 under the hood. And I feel like healthcare is a big area for that because when you spend a couple hundred thousand dollars or million dollars on a new machine, you're not going to be quick to update off of that thing. And if it comes with a already at unsupport Windows, you're basically screwed at that point. Now, it's not just the operating system. So applications are going to be ending support too. Uh, Microsoft announced that Edge 109, which comes out on the 12th, is the last version that will work for Windows 7. Uh, Chrome version 110 in February will drop support for Windows 7 entirely too. So we're at a point now where we're still going to have a decently sizable portion of machines out there uh, running a operating system that will no longer be getting OS or application updates. Now, there is there are caveats to that. Uh, with WannaCry and I guess the Eternal Blue vulnerabilities that enabled it, if you remember, Windows XP was out of support and out of extended support when that happened, uh, but they still put out a patch for Windows XP because of just how serious that vulnerability was. And so... I wouldn't bank on it, but if there was another Eternal Blue-esque issue in Windows, it's possible that they probably put out a patch for it, even for this. I, I bet you as we're talking uh, verticals, government is probably ones that have a lot of old OSs, probably half the time in, because of certain offices being less budgeted than others. So I, I, Microsoft is pretty good. If there's something horribly bad in a totally end-of-life, end-of-service OS, they sometimes will still fix it. And I'm guessing it's just because sometimes the government themselves and around the world are probably affected. But if you are uh, running any Windows 7 machines, it's already too late. You should have updated. But I guess late is better than never. And now is definitely the time to move on to a, a new operating system. And pretty system. much the same for 8.1, right? Since uh, they're ending normal yep. support, but they're not going to have the extended program. Man, I feel like we should have come to this podcast with a couple glasses of champagne for the death of yet another Windows operating system. <laughs> by the way, total aside, but since we're talking Microsoft and Windows, by the time you'll have listened to this, uh, we're actually recording on a different day, but it is Patch Tuesday as we record. Uh, if you're coming to this, you probably heard about it six days ago, but Patch Tuesday fixed 97 vulnerabilities, including one zero-day uh, kind of a, a browser privilege escalation and sandbox. Uh, or you know bypass so while we're talking about updating microsoft stuff make sure to get those microsoft patch day updates installed as well and if you're on windows 7 sucks for you yeah uh, yeah if you're on windows 7 you don't have to do anything but expect to get pop soon <laughs> 
Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics- This many stars. Or five stars. Suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter, which I think is still online. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.